0: Hey listeners, you've heard on the podcast from casting directors and Broadway directors just how vital a well-curated social media presence can be for your career. The Breakdown is proud to be partnering with TSMA Consulting, a globally recognized social media firm that can help you authentically grow your following without using bots, fake followers, or anything like that. I particularly love the welcome packet and the videos they include that help you optimize your account. And wow, did I learn a lot. The TSMA is offering an exclusive discount for our listeners. Use offer code BREAKDOWN20 for $20 off any of their growth packages at tsmagrowth.com. All right, listeners, onto the show. I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with actor and writer Michael Benjamin Washington. Michael is currently filming the new ABC comedy American Auto. Broadway credits include The Boys in the Band, also the film adaptation for Netflix, La Cage, and the original company of Mamma Mia!, Off-Broadway credits include the 2019 revival of Anna DeVere Smith's Fires in the Mirror at the Signature Theater, for which he won the New York Outer Critics Circle Award, New York Drama League Award, and the inaugural Antonio Award for Best Solo Performance. Also off-Broadway, Stephen Sondheim's Saturday Night at Second Stage. Television credits include Ratchet and the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt for Netflix, 30 Rock, Glee, Law & Order, and 100 Questions, among many, many others. Listeners, I am so happy to have Michael on the podcast. His resume as an actor is so diversified with plays and musicals and great television roles, which is what so many of us are striving for to work in so many different mediums, plays and musicals and television, but is unfortunately uncommon in our business. And I loved hearing how Michael carefully but intentionally crafted this career in this industry. I was also so happy to chat with Michael about how his writing has opened doors for some really thrilling acting opportunities. This is a huge lesson that I took away from this chat. Create your own work and opportunities, really do it because people will take notice. I also had to ask Michael about his long working relationship with producer Ryan Murphy. Michael brings us on the journey of booking Glee, so when Boys in the Band came around, he already knew Ryan, but he also knew the casting director and the director and the producer from various other projects, and how a chance encounter on the opening night of Boys in the Band on Broadway led to Nurse Ratchet. There is so much more to say, but I want you to hear it for yourself. Now remember, if you like what you hear, please take a quick second and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. I know you hear this a lot, but it really makes a huge difference. And share this episode with a friend. The Breakdown community is growing, and it is only because of all of you. So thank you so much for spreading the word. All right, listeners, without further ado, here is my conversation with the wonderful, kind, funny, and extremely talented Michael Benjamin Washington. Michael, I am so happy to be seeing you. Honored that you are joining me to talk to me today. I am for sure a fan of your stage work and recently discovered your writing work, which I'm a fan of, and of course, the stuff that you've done on screen. And I've loved having actors on the podcast to kind of cross-reference, like I said before. And when thinking about people who have these interesting, very cool careers that I'd love to find out more about, you are high on the list. So I am grateful for your time today.
1: Yay, well, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast. I've heard many friends on it and learned um, more than a handful. So thank you for being an educator to so many of us in the industry as well.
0: Oh my gosh, I had no idea about that part of it. That is very... Very kind and very sweet. I have definitely had, um, you know, some people that I just know that you know on the podcast. Obviously, many of your um, Boys in the Band cohorts on different sides of that, with, of course, Brian Hutchison, who we just talked about, but also David Caparelliotis was a professor of mine and now, you know, friend and also past podcast guest who was your casting director, which we'll talk more about that later. And then, of course, your fearless director. Joe Mantello, who I mean, you know, just a legend. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that was a great
1: conversation between you two as well. So I'm very, very excited to talk to you today.
0: I mean, same, same. I mean, microphone recording aside, just happy to be having this conversation. So. My first question is, how are you today? What's going on? Like, how are you feeling? What What are you ruminating about? Where um, you're in L. A. right now currently? Yes. Yeah,
1: it's such a great question, Robbie, because I was journaling this morning. I got up at six a.m. I'm in Los Angeles and just left two days ago from New York, um, finishing a workshop, and I'm starting a series on NBC this week. And I had a big fitting yesterday, which is always so fun to go drive onto a lot and have all of the memories of the tv shows that i saw as a kid growing up and going to drama school and wondering if one day you would you know if your pilot season would actually produce something that you might actually go and shoot and this is my second series on nbc and the last one was 10 years ago so the growth and the life changes that have happened since then to now it was just like i need to write all of this down and be as grateful as i possibly can because There's something that happens when your dreams start to come true. You know, It's always nothing for nothing. It's the one great dream is coming true while something else is unbalanced in your life. And I really had to sit down this morning and wake up and write down what I was grateful for with this new experience. So it'll be fun to talk about how it got to today with you. It'll be very cathartic for me in a very healthy way.
0: I love that. And I love just that practice of that you're having this high moment, you know, right now, like you said, and even the costume fitting, I totally can't wait to have one of those after it's been so long after this past year and a half. I love that you wrote down, you know, what you're grateful for because some of the great advice I received was like, and what I pass on is, is, you know, how do you keep the hot, how do you keep the lows from being so low in between Mm -hmm. jobs, in between work when it feels like where's the next job going to come? Or the advice that was imparted to me was like, keep, the highs manageable, you Mm -hmm. know, and I think a great way to do that is what you are talking about is like, even when you're having some great success or you're working to be able to have some gratitude and to write that down, I'm just... Learning that for myself in the moment seems like a great practice. Um, is that something that you've always done, do you, do you think? Or is this something new? Or Well, yeah, I've, I've always journaled. And during
1: quarantine, I found all of my journals and went to my storage unit and got everything out and scanned it. I'm trying to learn to, you know, less paper, more digital and move into, you know, the newfangled world. I feel a little old in that regard. But I've always written stuff down and I was thumbing through the journals from my twenties and thirties and the things that I thought I was worried about as an actor and just as a man and going through New York city and growth and love and career and all of that stuff. And it's so amazing when you become a writer, you start writing everybody else's issues and problems and conflicts and obstacles, but you forget to look at your own and keep that default somewhat manageable, like you're saying, and just remembering where I am right now in the context of the bigger picture of what I wanted to be when I was 12, starting you know getting my union cards and my first commercials, and then being 18 at NYU, what I thought I wanted, and when I turned 30, what I thought I wanted. And now it's the same thing, but it's more specific. Like for example, one of the things I was writing that I wanted to be grateful was how many actors I know have had a really horrifying year in the past year. Uh, one of my friends was like, I have to go home and I haven't talked to my parents since I came out. And that was over you know, 17 years ago, but I have no option. My survival gigs are dried up. The world is shut down. I have to do this if I'm gonna live. And it's like, just to be working, it's, it just takes on a whole new meaning right now, Robbie. You know, I, I got really emotional about it this morning, but it's also emotional on behalf of all of the actors who are ready to get back into the fight and ready to get back into it with a new sense of self-awareness like we've been talking. So just keeping my self-awareness in, in, in check is a big thing right now.
0: Yeah. You know, usually this is a question I kind of save for the end, but just because we're talking about it and you're going through these journals and, you know, scanning things, what an interesting thing to go back and be reading things that you were thinking about and what was going on. What were some of the things maybe you were doing in your 20s or your 30s or that you were spending time worrying or thinking about that maybe, maybe one example or, you know, something that was serving you that like you know now in 2021 where you are about to do your second NBC show you know looking hindsight this was serving me and then maybe something you were doing that looking back on it maybe wasn't serving you or it wasn't something that you feel like was as helpful uh looking back
1: yeah i think one of the big ones is i was told in my 20s say yes to everything because you don't know where the next opportunity is going to come from so I was in the original company of Mamma Mia for two years, 11 months, and three weeks. And about that year and a half wow. of singing my ABBA, man, two harmonies in the booth, we're studying Joe Mahota as you know Sky and playing the best friend eight times a week, I really needed an outlet. So I would do every reading and workshop that I was offered. And it got to a point where production stage manager, Andy Fenton, who's was like, Michael, you've done 17 readings and workshops in the last six months. That's like every day off you have, you're doing something different and Broadway inspirational voices, and you're doing all of this stuff, you're gonna burn yourself out if you keep saying yes to everything. That probably went, and I wrote that down because I'm like, oh, I got reprimanded for doing too much outside work. And looking at it now, it's like, yeah, being a lot more picky with what you wanna do um, so you don't spread yourself too thin and you can give the best of yourself to, you know, your primary job. And that has probably been the biggest lesson that I've learned in the past twenty years. You know, be a little bit more picky about what you want to do so you can give your full self to everything you do say yes to,
0: yeah. I love that. I love that. I actually just had a chat with Walter Bobby for the podcast yesterday. And he said, whatever you do, he was like, when I started directing, and make it the best thing. Pretend even if it's the smallest little reading, pretend it's a big Broadway show. Put your yeah. all into it, you know. And I think that's going along with what you're saying. Like, I think if you are doing so much, maybe you can't devote like your all to everything. I certainly know that. I think we all try to spread ourselves too thin and say yes, you know. So I love, I love that yeah yeah yeah. like even trying to
1: arrange this with you, and I couldn't wait to talk with you, but you know, moving cross country and I finished a workshop last week of a new musical in New York, which being in a room with people, again, other artists and watching you know everybody create something was it was like your first job. I felt like I was eighteen and in New York City for the first time, and in many ways, it is a new New York and new ways of attacking things. So it was really good to be wide eyed again and to feel that naivete again and to not know the answers again and really have to go step by step to get everything together and done.
0: Yeah, we're talking about you brought up Mamma Mia and I know that you went to NYU for theater and, you know, in in researching you and looking at your resume. It's Mamma Mia, and then um, you know there's Lacage in there on Broadway, and then your resume reads almost like Act One and Act Two. Yeah. You know, like there's yeah. so much. There was like a big musical theater component to your resume, and then we switch over into this like very exceptional television career. I mean, Kimmy Schmidt, Thirty Rock, you know, Boys in the Band, you know, both on Broadway and Netflix. The show you're doing now, along with some uh, so many other things. That is kind of uncommon for people to have this, to I guess transition from musical theater into this more legit. I'm doing air quotes because I hate that people think that it's too different. It's, you know what I mean? We're all doing the same thing. Although we know it's not surprising to say that actors get pigeonholed into one or two things. What was that for you and how did you do that? Did you, was it like, was it a conscious choice? Or was it something that just kind of evolved and you were like actually television and more straight theater, you know, quote unquote non-musical theater is like what you what you want to be doing. I just wonder the decision between that and if it was easy. Or I can't imagine it was, but maybe it was.
1: Well, I think you just hit the nail on the head. It was it was an effort to not be pigeonheld. When I went to NYU, I started in the Lee Strasberg Institute. Um, that's where they placed me. They were like, you're gonna be the black method actor, the the black. Brando is what they kept saying. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that sounds neat if you'll teach me how to do that. We were um, spending like our third week smelling coffee and sense memorizing coffee. And I'm like, do you know how much my parents paid to send me here? This is a lot of coffee sniffing and tattooing <laughs> uh, to get my way to Brando. So a girl down the hall at my dorm by the name of Laura Bonanti, was going to be leaving because she was understudying Rebecca Luker and the Sound of Music. And we became fast friends, and I knew she was leaving, so there was going to be a slot open in the musical theater wing. So I crashed the placement auditions, and I was like, "You have to let me in here and teach me to sing and dance." And they were like, "Well, your ambition, come on in," and they found a space for me. And those were my first voice lessons and my first vo- uh, dance class. Then I got a minor in journalism, so I always knew how to write. I got my first audition. Um, a wonderful agent named Charles Botner, Mark Danti. They signed me at a. Uh, what are those things called, like a student um, industry night, agent night in the TV and film department. And the first audition they sent me out on was a Stephen Sondheim musical called Saturday Night. So the fear for me was I just learned to sing and dance and I'm going to go in front of the godfather of musical theater for my first audition with these big agents. And I booked it. Robbie, I I was (laughs) floored. so nyu has a rule of you can't act you know and work and and study so i didn't tell them i put all my classes in the morning rehearsed in the afternoon and at the first preview i saw like a row of my professors sitting there and i was like oh god oh god oh god but when i got done with it they were like the fact that you're trying to bounce around and knew that okay that's what you know, Strasbourg and method acting is this. Is what musical theater is. This is having a journalism minor so that you know how to write and to be able to do all of that is going to serve you. Because one of my professors said, you know, as a black boy in this business, there's never going to be enough work for you, so you have to know how to spread your tentacles. And that's always been my conscious choice. When I did Mama Mia, then La Cage, there was kind of a dearth of roles. It was like you can be. Uh, what was it, a monkey and Tarzan, a donkey and Shrek, you could be a lion in The Lion King or a hyena. It was like all these animal parts in musicals. And I was like, well, if I wanna play the guy in trousers or the young lover, like I was trained to do, how do I do that? And there was no answer then. So I had to stop auditioning for musical theater for a long time and just make myself available for, television and film which stuff started to hit with nbc and they've taken care of me for the last god knows how long you know since 30 rock where i played tracy morgan's son so when you act one and act two it's so apt robbie because it was that it was musical theater which is what i trained and loved to do television film and now i get to write musicals which we'll talk about when we get to the writing portion of the conversation so now i can go back and start supplying roles for everybody that I know is in the same position that I was and talent that isn't, you know, I I write for everyone, but I'm very, very sensitive to the journey. That's bumpy for a lot of people starting out, getting out of school and where do you fit. And then when you become a little bit more seasoned as a journey person, actor, uh, used to be journeyman actor, but trying to be as inclusive as possible because there's so many types now and there's so many roles that should be fitting those types. And I like to be a part
0: of that. Wow, I love that. I, I love that, and like your teacher said, ambition. I think that's. I think that's a huge thing of succeeding in this in this business is is absolutely ambition. And at some point in this journey, you get, for lack of a better word, you fall into the Ryan Murphy universe, which mm-hmm. people like to call it. Which is not a bad place to be from an outsider looking in. I mean, yeah. I'm a huge fan of his work. I'm a huge fan of the stories that he tells and the. Sub niche, you know, pockets or stories or cultures that are brought up and themes and the threads in his shows. The first time you worked with him probably was Glee, right? Is that is that right? Very cool. Was a huge fan of Glee, Uh and then Boys in the Band happens on Broadway, which was Ryan's first stab at Broadway. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Which is is insane that it then goes and wins revival of Best Tony, and it was an exceptional production. Of course it goes to Netflix, and then was a huge fan of Ratchet. I mean, it just saved me during the pandemic. I think so many of us were binging it. I just wonder if you can talk a little bit about that, maybe through the lens of, we talk a lot about on the podcast of relationships in the business and how meeting people, people who you know, It always, that's kind of how you get work. The specific question is, can you talk about how Boys in the Band happened for you? Was it the audition process? Did you know Joe Mantella, the director previously, or was it a connection from Glee? And then maybe you can bring us through how Ratchet happened, you know, in my fan, in my fan mind, like Ryan Murphy just brings you aside on set one day and he's like, do you want to do the next one? Do you know, but, but maybe you can um, talk a little bit about actually how things happen in the business, which is why we're here today.
1: Yeah. When I moved to LA to do that first series on NBC, um, it was called 100 Questions and we only got to six. And when it got shut down. (laughs) Um, I became available and I'm like, do I go back to New York and jump back in the musical theater? or Do I stay out here? And I think within like a, two weeks of that show getting canceled, um, I got an appointment for Glee and it had said a very studious African-American Pulitzer Prize finalist who comes to expose Sue Sylvester and looks like he was born in a tweed sport coat or something very, very, very specific. And like I went in, and um, I, I got the job. I went in through casting, <clears throat> and I got the gig. And a friend of mine, Matt Morrison, who I went to NYU with and studied with, was like, "Hey, I'm going to uh, see Ryan tonight. Do you want to come with? We're just going to go to Chateau Marmont and have a drink." And I'm like, "Oh, this sounds so Hollywood and so she she." But sure, and I went and I met him for the first time. And I walked in, and he just like had his arms open. He's like, "Welcome." And it sounded like a long term welcome, but it could have just been like, welcome to cocktails for the night. It <laughs> felt longer. So I had this great experience working for him. He was so kind. And then many years later, Boys in the Band came up. I got in through casting David Cap, who is, um, I know, a, a dear, um, special person to you and to me. He's he's fought for me over the years to get in so many things. I mean, I remember being on that series and he's like, hey, Stanley Tucci is directing, you know, a lend me the tenor. There's a small part. I really want you to come in. I flew cross country just to read, to make David look good, you know, Um, and to read for Stanley Tucci. But he has always been a huge advocate. And he's like, listen, it's a really crunchy role. I'll understand if you don't want to do it, but read it. Tell me what you think. You know, of course, everybody on the Creative team knows who you are. Ryan was really nice. And David Stone has been a big, big supporter of mine um, in really pushing me in the writing realm and then a big advocate of that. So it was just a great, it was alchemy. It was just timing. And I wasn't afraid of that part, which a lot of actors would be, understandably. It's underwritten. It's very painful. It's not easy to grasp why he's there, what he wants, what he wants to do. But Joe knew that I was writing a play for Maya Angelou's estate set in April of 1968 and the complications of James Baldwin being a gay black man in this white world in New York City. And the obstacle course that I was writing for that character was not foreign to me because when I read Boys in the Band and saw Bernard's journey in April of 1968, being a gay black man in this white world, how do you get through that obstacle course? it was worth it for me to go on that exploration with Joe and that company of men. And so after that, we we had a great, great, great rehearsal process, and then on opening night, my parents came to opening and my father's a colonel in the army, my mother's a CEO and a chairman of Dallas Opera for years and all of that kind of
0: stuff. Wow. They're having 40 the Ambition year. runs in the family. It really does. Their
1: 48th wedding anniversary is next week. And oh, at one congratulations. Point, my father walked up to Ryan Murphy and introduced himself, and it just touched Ryan's heart so much. So he pulls me over to a side. Ah, uh, table with him and Sarah Paulson, and he's like, oh, "I just spoke to your father, and how lucky you are to have a father that's that supportive. And if I had had that, I understand where you would have been." He's like, "I got an idea," and Sarah Paulson's like, "Yeah, there's an idea." I don't know what that means. <laughs> months, months, months later, we're shooting the film. A messenger drops by some sides for Ratchet, and um, my agent kind of knew some cryptic clues because the thing about Ryan is he doesn't, you know, give out scripts. Because they'll, you know, leak. So you kind of decide for what you're needed for, and you kind of have to piece it together. And I knew I'm doing something with Cynthia Nixon, who's one of my favorite actors of all time. And it just turned out to be Ryan's answer to that very difficult part you did in Boys in the Band in a period piece was really well done. Now, if I gave you a role in a period piece that had agency and you own the home and you're the lawyer and this marriage Might not be working out, but it's going to be on both of your terms. It was just a lot of agency he gave me in those three beautiful episodes of Ratchet, which I got to tell you, Robbie, walking on that set in a Ryan Murphy universe where even the fork is from 1947, like there's nothing out of place. It's like a time machine. As an actor, that was probably one of the greatest compliments of my life, you know, just to know that he gave me the nod for something else.
0: And, you know, it, it's exactly what I was saying before. I loved that plot point in Ratchet because it was like this sub story that I feel like we would never get to hear about, but was actually very prevalent in that time of like a gay man and a lesbian female living together, married because to keep up appearances and to keep up their jobs, which is you know, part of the story. That's like what they had to do and how tragic and the power dynamic and the relationship that goes into that. I mean, already these words are like making me think how fun to dive into and to act. And as you say, give gives so much agency. So it just was really wonderful kudos to the two of you because you were equally wonderful and yes doing a scenes with Cynthia Nixon i could only imagine how incredible that must have been
1: i mean a full masterclass who was so incredible and we shot like most of it in one day that was six scenes in one day we met we did our breakup scene and you know dinner scene and the getting out of bed scene like all in one day so it was a masterclass in learning how to put stuff on film quickly and forming relationships quickly But I just had a masterclass with, you know, seven of my brothers and boys in the band who live in that world and can really, really move quickly through that kind of stuff, which we had to do. I think the Broadway rehearsal, we had two weeks, you know, while Jim Parsons was finishing Boy's uh, uh, Big Bang Theory. So we went to L.A. to shoot or to rehearse for the Broadway production for two weeks, came, he finished his show there, and then we were opening, you know, in front of packed audiences. Three and a half
0: weeks, four weeks later, it was so amazing to work that fast and learn how to. And then you know, this is so interesting to me because I think what a cool exercise to do of doing a role on Broadway so well received, Mm -hmm. and then all of a sudden we're doing the Netflix movie, and it's taking that performance and I don't know, I, I don't know what what was what was doing a show on Broadway, and then maybe making it on film? Well, what's funny is like Matt Bomer and
1: um, I think it was Jim Parsons say, you know, I never want to do a, I never want to do a film unless I can do a Broadway run of it first. And I'm like, Oh no boys. It's like for me making that film was so much fun because the material is so painful that revisiting it every night to the depth that I decided to play Bernard yeah, um, the sadness on his soul. It was just something that you live with every day for 15 weeks on stage. Plus, it was an edited version of Mark Crowley's original. So like little things fall out because of time and there's no intermission and it's not Bernard's show. So we hurry up and get to the point. But what Joe Mantello did so masterfully in the movie was all the things that were taken out that kind of would have helped me a little bit, but the audience wouldn't have known on stage he was able to put in through a simple image. Like, you don't know that Bernard is a you know librarian when we did the Broadway production, but in the film, the first image of him is walking through a library. And it's like instantly you know what he does for a living, you know the intellectual you know,ness of him, the idea of being a gay Black man in 1968, how do you get that across the footlights on stage? very easily in a film when you can have the great Tina Fabre on a subway giving you a look while you're checking out that white boy. It just, those kinds of things help the performance so much that you just don't have time or space for, you know, at the booth theater. So it was really great to see how you fill in the holes in film that you can't do live.
0: You guys did such an exceptional job, all of you, I mean, you know, and it's a testament to to the actors, but also to everyone that was working on it. And like you said, in that Ryan Murphy world where, you know, I've seen pictures of the set and I could only imagine what it was like actually getting to be on the set and doing it. And, you know, you all did, you yeah. all did very, very well. And it was such an important story to tell, you know, it was a period story, but it, you know, wasn't about the AIDS crisis. It was, you know, I feel like it was so important for people to be able to see and to be put on the the scale of Netflix, you know, with some exceptional actors, including yourself.
1: Whenever those stories can go around the world and have a global audience, instead of just a national one, that's when things really start to change, you know, Mm -hmm. very difficult piece, but it's also important that it's told by storytellers from the experience, you know, when the tribe itself gets to tell the stories of their grandfathers or their great-grandfathers or the time before, there's a continuum there. And I thought it was very important that we got to um, tell that story. And any of the mistakes,
0: they're ours. And that feels really, really empowering. So, so, so cool. Um, I do want to jump to, to your writing because I think it's it's incredible. I think it's so wonderful that you are doing more than one thing in this industry professionally and doing it very well. But also, I think during the pandemic, a lot of people have had to pivot in terms of like finding something to feel creative or to do something. And people have turned to writing. People, I turned to podcasting. Do and everyone has like their own thing. But I, I sometimes think, and we talked about this a little bit about being pigeonholed, like that the industry can kind of not be so welcoming sometimes when people say oh but i'm also doing this it's like oh well now i'm confused about who you are and it's like absolutely ridiculous but i'm just wondering if you can talk about you know obviously you decided to pursue writing when you were in college but when it really became um more pronounced maybe to start writing more plays and as you were talking about musicals and and what that what your experience is like for you if you have ever found people to be adversarial about that choice to 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 do more than one thing or how it the writing maybe keeps you afloat through the times where you're not working or just just about all about that right well it
1: started out writing for myself because i wanted to do things other than play the best friend which is what i was doing a lot of and i enjoy i'm good at being the sidekick it's a great you know lane for me and it, But when you want to do something completely out of the box, when I was in Mamma Mia, I wrote a two act play called Mahogany Reflections on Vanity, which was about the rise and fall and rise again of a fictitious black songstress named Mahogany who lived in New York City. And I uh, wrote it and did it at Joe's Pub. And it was lip synced to 17 songs by African-American songstresses from Patti LaBelle and Eartha Kitt to Jennifer Holliday and Gladys Knight. And it was a story that I wrote. And I don't know if like one night Harvey Fierstein came and saw it or something, but I got this call about The Maid in Lacage was coming up and everyone had their eye on me for that. So the idea of writing this show that I would do on Monday nights when I wasn't playing at the Winter Garden became this escape that I thought I was going to have to do when I was at NYU, because we never know if a big Broadway show is going to come when you're 20 years old. You know, you assume it's not. So if it's not, what am I going to be doing instead? But then when I turned about 33 and I had done um, this reading for Terrell Alvin McCraney called Choir Boy, which became a big Broadway hit. For interesting- Loved
0: it. I saw it on Broadway. It was exceptional. Isn't it incredible? It's just oh, incredible. It was so exceptional. Do you know Jonathan Burke at yeah. all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a dear friend and past podcast guest. And I went to see him as... Uh, various, is that his name? Okay. Farius? Yes. Ferris. Oh, yeah. so good. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, I saw that you, I saw in an interview that you played that role. Originally was
1: yeah, first reading. He took it out of like his drawer because I, I had auditioned for the brother size plays at a, the public and I didn't get it. And he's like, but I know what to do for you. So we read it on my 30th birthday at Manhattan theater club. And I played Ferris and my world was rocked. It was the first straight play that I had been offered directly and it was a lead and it was so close to me and based on Richard II and it had all this ancestry to it. And afterwards the uh, director came up to me, he's like, you know, you're great but they're probably really gonna cast a 16 year old when it's time, but Bayard Rustin. And I was like, who's that? And so I went and I uh, got this documentary, Brother Outsider and I never watched it for two years the series on NBC got canceled. I had done Glee. I said, what's next? What am I supposed to do next? And Robbie, like, as it only can happen for actors, it's still in its cellophane. The DVD fell off my shelf, like right at my feet. And I looked at it and I watched it for the first time. And I'm like this great openly gay black civil rights leader that nobody knows about who planned the March on Washington. I'm supposed to write that. So I wrote it. La Jolla Playhouse produced it. Felicia Rashad directed and, um, directed it for two years in development. It became this huge thing because nobody had told his story before. And the catharsis for me was stop waiting for somebody else to create something for you. You have to create it for yourself. You have to be willing to do that. And even if it never gets produced, it's something about the process of creating the universe will reward you for. And to get produced in the American theater as a playwright, who they also let you play the role, which is a double whammy, because I wasn't expecting even that, gave me such confidence and gave me big wings. It got me a great agent at William Morris, Michael Finkel, who still represents me in my writing. And, you know, we're working on projects now. I'm writing this beautiful documentary that just opened at Tribeca last month called P.S. Burn This Letter, Please. Um, a box of letters from drag queens in the 1950s was found in a famous Hollywood uh, mogul's unit when he had passed, storage unit when he passed. And it was turned into this documentary about the mafia-run drag clubs of New York City. And so Aaron Glick, the Tony Award-winning producer of Boys in the Band on Broadway, was like, hey, I know your a Rustin play. You have this great sense of history. Watch this documentary and tell me what you would do. And we have, I've turned in a draft uh, last month before I came and I'm in love with it. And I think that's all I should say about it at the moment, but somehow we've convinced Cole Porter's estate to go along with this crazy idea. So (laughs) uh, that's my current baby that I'm working on.
0: Oh my gosh, Michael, that's incredible. Yeah. I'm very excited about it. So do you think it's going to be a Is it a musical or is it a
1: play? Oh, it's a musical. It's a musical with uh, Cole Porter's catalog. So I'm a big fan of his. And and uh, yeah, it's just really great. In this world of RuPaul's Drag Race, we have this new concept of what that art form is. And just to know what the grandparent of it is, as i touched on before, it's like, where did this start in the 1950s? What was happening in Harlem? in the drag world at that time? Where were the, you know, the Puerto Rican drag queens? Where were the fresh from Midwest and now the island of Manhattan is home, the duality of male and female, and the difference between female mimics and female impersonators and drag queens and what all of that is. It's so fascinating how it all really began and what the, the legacy of that art form and a time when New York City was very, very much a utopian existence regarding all of that stuff. We've, we've gotten new labels over the past fifty years to pigeonhole people, but there was once upon a time when it was, you know, John F. Kennedy and Jackie and Judy Garland going to see this drag show on a Saturday night, and that was high entertainment. So I just want to return us back to that luxury world, if I can.
0: Yeah, and it does seem like. Only now it is becoming high entertainment again. I think in the world of where, of course, Drag Race and RuPaul making it very expensive to go see a drag show now. But it's interesting that it's, we're getting back there. But that's where we, that's where it started and that's where we used to be. And I think that having that conversation between generate, that generational conversation is, that is so very cool. That's exciting.
1: Even in 2004, when we did Lakage, I mean, we were still met with, You know, God hates facts protesters at the stage door when we closed Gay Pride weekend, you know. And so to see by the time Kinky Boots arrived, you know, uh, uh, a black president of the United States lighting up the White House in rainbow colors was like, whoa, look how far that jump was in just those six years. The people who came to our Lakage, like, why are we talking about gay marriage? This is so archaic. And then just two years later, it was, this great fight to get it past that we all now enjoy. So it's very interesting to watch the continuum and how it shifts and goes up and down.
0: Yeah, very exciting. Well, we will, I will stay up to date on it and um, very exciting to see what it's going to be. You know, as we're kind of talking about all these very exciting things that have, you know, been you've been asked at opening night parties with Sarah Paulson and, but then also opportunities you have created yourself, like the DVD falling down and you writing the play and that kind of catching fire. And, you know, then Aaron asking you to do this. It's all, it's so, it's so incredible. And I'm so happy because I feel like it's happening to such a well-deserving talented person. And I just wonder, you're like, where's this going? (laughs) I just wonder, um, As these dreams come true into fruition, I mean, Boys in the Band, lead of a Netflix film, like, and then now you're writing and the writing is taking off. I just wonder, like, as these things happen, and, you know, we started with talking about writing about gratitude, how are you deciding about what you want to do next? Or, like, how are you deciding as these dreams come true, what's the next dream? Or, how do you keep refining where you want and and where you want to go as, as some of these things are are coming true for you and i m- imagine maybe it's a conversation with your management or the your, your, the people around you about where they think you should go and then talking to you know yourself about where that is but i wonder if you could talk about some of those decisions writing and also performing
1: Well, the the interesting thing is part of the gratitude that I've learned is the art of surrendering, you know, when I was 20 and it was say yes to everything and chase everything and try to get in for everything. And why can't I read for this and to doing all of that? The beautiful thing about the theater is most people stay in it for a very, very long time. So there's still the same folks that have known me since I was at NYU who are still in power that I don't have to chase things that much anymore. I have to wait for them. The hardest part for me was this, this jump. When you do start working, you can't chase certain roles just to like keep money or to keep, you know, just to keep working. You have to wait for the right role to come again, uh, the next one to come and surrendering to that. I didn't see Boys in the Band coming, Dave Cap did. I didn't see Fires in the Mirror for Anna Devere Smith, Dave Kapp did while I was doing Netflix by Dave Cap, So it's the same casting director who 10 years ago said get on a plane for Stanley Tucci saying, hey, read this, I'll understand if you don't want to do it. A big part of that surrender was watching, again, being a Black actor in show business is very different than what I've gotten to see my white counterparts do, simply because of the number of roles and productions available. You know, you have to wait as a Black actor for somebody to be open-minded enough to let everybody read for the parts. And hopefully in this new awakening that we're having in the, in the American theater, that will start to shift. I'm starting to see it a lot. I've gotten contacted about more things than I would have before 2020, but I will always remember Eddie Murphy and Denzel Washington doing interviews. Eddie Murphy's was on Inside the Actor Studio and Denzel Washington's was on 60 Minutes and they asked him, so when you get a script, what is the thing that you look for that really draws you? To it. And Denzel Washington said, What do you mean? He's like, Well, you know, like you're people's sexiest man alive. What when a script comes to you? He's like, I don't get sent scripts. And this is when I was in drama school. And I'm thinking, Ed, um, Denzel Washington is the king. How is this not possible? You hear Eddie Murphy say, You know, uh, James Lipton was like, So when you look for a script, he's like, I never got sent scripts. My agent got me 48 hours. So I did that. Then my agent got me trading places. And then I did that. It's what comes to you and being prepared to fill it and knowing that you're gonna to have to wait until the next one if you don't write. So my anxiety was always, what are you creating for yourself or somebody that looks like you? That way if mm-hmm. you can't do it, somebody else will. And that has given me a lot of power and it's given me a lot of freedom. And I sleep better now knowing that I made the rounds in my 20s and 30s. I kept my nose clean, I treated people well, so people do call about, you know, big time things like boys in the band because they know I'll be able to handle it. And then getting your next assignment from them. And then the producer has you write this. And then David Stone was overseeing me while I was trying to do this. And it's been that kind of thing. The long that's a long answer to say when you actually give over and know that you've done everything that you can do, the universe does start rewarding you in time. But all the things. You're chasing and trying to get that were never meant for you aren't going to come for you anyway. So, how do you just stay prepared, stay available, treat people well, and know that in time it will come? I know people said that to me in my 20s and I never believed it. But now that I'm in my 40s, I can tell you yes, it is absolutely true. So,
0: well, that is. Reassuring for me to hear. (laughs) It's, I think it's going to be reassuring for a lot of people to hear that. In what you were just saying, I just was thinking. I'm so happy that you're writing. I I think I also think it would be disingenuous to not just talk about what has been happening the last year and a half, in addition to the pandemic, but also social justice and talking about equality and casting and what's happening. I feel like maybe more publicly in the theater world right now, just because it's more people are talking about it, but I know that it is, you know, casting and equal opportunity is is an issue um, in every profession, not just in our industry. So I think it's in finding voices like yours and people, up, uh, you know, trans men, trans women, um, you know, more stories about gay men that aren't about AIDS or coming out or do you know what I mean? Just being there are just so important to have in our world, you know, because the, the more stories that are written, the more producers will look at those. And we're lucky to have you is what I'm trying to say, I guess. and And just going off of that, what are you hoping for moving forward as we all reopen in 2021. You said that you are seeing some change and you're seeing some steps in the right direction. Um, And I I am too, but I am not a black man. So, but I am seeing, you know, dear um, Douglas Lyons play coming to Broadway. So excited about that. Some really wonderful things that are coming, but maybe what are, what are you hoping to see maybe more specifically or broadly as we go back into 2021? I don't know. I feel like this is a hard question, but I'm just but I'm just interested to learn from from your perspective something that um, maybe we have been talking about as a zeitgeist in a community, but or maybe something that you're like this is actually something personal that I'd like to see moving forward into 2021 about maybe the business or or the way we're all interacting.
1: Well, I think what's most important is that everybody has had this consciousness shift in the past year, not only with their own mortality. But the country that they live in and seeing active illustrations of anything from dissent to hate to um, exclusion to erasure. There's been so many examples that people have seen that they cannot deny. And before, if your eyes weren't open to it, you just didn't see it or you thought it was a myth or well, what am I going to do about it? People have learned what they can actively do about it. Seeing members of our community giving their social media platforms to organizations that know by reaching, say, Kelly O'Hara, who I follow and how she gives her platform to, um, you know, a black advocacy organization on a regular basis so that her followers are educated. Those kinds of things are the shifts that really are going to matter because It's when you turn the blind eye or you pretend that you don't have any say when you do have power um, in this business, as a lot of artists do, a lot of actors do. Um, It's very, very important. And that has been a big shift that I've seen. What I'm hoping also to see is in production, the things that we choose to bring to Broadway aren't um, targeted just to the one audience that it has been for, I think, 65 years. It's not so much even just who is on stage, it's who are you trying to get in the seats? And we've seen so many examples, whether it be Debbie Allen's uh, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof with her all-black cast, that was the most financially successful straight play of that season with a successful Westin transfer starring James Earl Jones. But there was years before there was anything like that again but it proved itself as a commercial worth and it packed the houses as The Color Purple has done with black audience members. When invited, we show up, but if not invited, why would we? So the inclusion of the audience and people on stage and behind the table and in the stage crew and in the orchestra pit is a very big shift and sweep that is happening because it's going to have to happen. There are too many people who are now actively watching the participation of all people that are available, not just a very slim margin for the very specific audience that has been targeted on the great white way. I mean, I don't know if I'm allowed to even discuss this, but I'll, I'll take it on the head. Like I just finished a workshop of the Devil Wears Prada for Sir Elton John. Kevin McCollum is producing it along with David Furnish, Sir Elton's husband. And to be in that room for 10 days while we just worked on the script and the music and to see the diversity of the cast and to not telling the story in the same way that you would even expect it to be told, but the effort which had started in 2019 before all of this started. I mean, I got cast a long time ago as a lot of the people of color who are in it did, but to see the conscious effort of that kind of shift and to see that the story doesn't suffer because it's about something different, but it grows because we know that we're telling it in 2021, it is the change you want to see. It is the thing that needs to happen. So as long as people start to become conscious of that, producers, um, casting directors who have always been my first line of defense, it's the only way I get in the room, you know, mm-hmm. if they choose to think of me, why can't Michael play that Stanley Tucci role as well? Go for it. Oh, look what happened. We love it, you know. Those are the changes and those are the people who are actually going to make the industry change for the better. So and audiences too, you know, we can't do it. My my late great drama teacher Ida Wellsman said the magical triumph, right? You need a script, you need a performer, and you need an audience. And without one of those three things, there is no theater. There is a story that has to be told by someone and received by someone. And if you can give each point its equal respect and self-awareness, then you actually have a chance to include everybody.
0: So I completely love that. And I'm so happy that you shared about Double Wars Prada because I think that the conversation can also extend to like we can do these big commercial movie musical splashes. You know, we're not saying like, obviously it's unfortunately where Broadway is a little bit right now, but we can tell the story of the Devil Wears Prada and still also be incredibly equitable and telling it with a 2021 vision. And that makes me really excited to hear that it's not mutually exclusive. It's not one or the other. It's not equal and safe or, you know, big commercial and unsafe and uninclusive. You know, so I love that we're being able to find the way to to merge the two. So that, that gives me yeah. some hope to hear that. And I have to say, you know, that's
1: Anna D. Shapiro directing and Kate Weatherhead in the book and Shayna Atab on lyrics with Sir Elton John, Geniuses. queen of them all, you know, right. but it is like a female-led organization and the ladies get things done a little bit quicker and differently than than gentlemen, I must say. And I, I was I woke up to that as a book writer, like, wow, they changed act two overnight. It wasn't like two workshops later. It's like there's just a an urgency to to new voices that get to that haven't been heard before. So I'm excited for the ladies and the story they're telling.
0: I was thinking that. I was thinking, oh, it must be very cool for you now writing the book of a musical to be just you know, you're doing your job in that room, but you're also kind of like, oh, how are they, you know, rewriting and doing everything? And certainly you're in great company in that, you know, in that experience.
1: So back to the beginning of our conversation, picking and choosing things wisely and for what reason. So, yeah,
0: exactly. Exactly. You're getting an education on on both fronts. Mm-hmm. Michael, I am so thrilled to talk to you today. I probably could keep talking to you for a couple more hours, and I hope that we get to do that um, yeah, just will. in life, in life. But you, um, this was, you know, everything that I was hoping for and more. I mean, I could totally fan out and be asking you more questions about all the things that you did. We didn't even talk about Kimmy Schmidt and all of that. But, um, but I am um, just grateful for your time, and thank you so much for sharing this with with me and and all of us today.
1: Well, thank you for having me and thank you for doing this podcast. It's so important for us to hear these conversations from artists with other artists. So please
0: keep doing it. I so appreciate that, Michael. Thank you. Thank you. For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit TheBreakdownPodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Instagram and Facebook at The Breakdown with Robbie. We also have some pretty exciting supplementary content over there, like Instagram live catch-ups with some of your favorite podcast guests. If you like what you hear, please make sure to subscribe, rate, and write a quick review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. And don't forget to check out TSMA Consulting. Use offer code BREAKDOWN20 for $20 off any of their growth packages at tsmagrowth.com. All right, listeners, thanks for listening, and get ready for another episode of The Breakdown. Ah!